Welcome to this week's episode on Rec Play Live. This is your host, Pashoda, and... Garcia over here. Oh my gosh. So this week we have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn. She is the creator of Metahabilitation, at least the term, right? I guess everybody's been metahabbing for a long time, and we're excited to have her on this week, and we hope that you guys are excited too and learn more. And if you've been listening to our podcast, you would have also gotten a little bit of intro in one of our podcasts that we talked about the Recreation Therapy Institute. So, without further ado, we'll go ahead and get started with the interview. All right, so could you tell us uh, a little bit about yourself so that everyone knows a little bit more about you? Okay. Well, so I am um, a nurse practitioner in family practice, and I'm a professor, an, an associate professor at Sacramento State University. But initially, my work uh, that is now focused on post-traumatic growth using metahabilitation as a clinical pathway to accomplish that really came out of an experience that I had um, early on. So when I was younger, I was 35 years old, very active, mother of three, um, was uh, at a swim meet uh, for my children's swim team. I have no memory of any of this. There's about a month of my life that I, I have zero memory of. But I'm a triathloner and a marathoner, an extremely active person. They had an adult relay for fun. So I was told that I grabbed my husband and a couple of friends and said, come on, we're going to swim this and we're going to win this. And I'm the fastest, so I'm going to swim last, um, which I did. And I happened to finish at the side of the pool that was 13 feet deep. And I was told that I did finish, but then something happened, and I just sunk to the bottom of this pool, and they realized that I wasn't surfacing, so my husband dove down to the bottom of the pool and pulled me to the side. Um, I was very lucky that there were a lot of children there, and some of these children's parents were physicians, so there were a couple of emergency room physicians and a cardiac nurse specialist who provided 22 minutes of CPR at the poolside to get my heart going again. Um, there was a helicopter that was landed close to the site to life flight me over to UC Davis. Um, I was told my heart stopped again on the helicopter, and they finally got me to UC Davis into their ER and then an ICU and on a respirator. I was on the respirator for about a week or so before they were able to wean me off. And again, I have no memory virtually no memory of being in ICU or being at UC Davis at all. Um, the first memory I have at all is when I was uh, uh, sent over to Sutter Hospital, and I just remember sitting up in my bed one night, and my brother-in-law and my sister-in-law were at the end of the bed, and I just looked at them and said, "What? what's going, what am I doing? Where, where am I? And they said, you know, you're in Sutter Hospital. You had this event, which I'm sure people told me a bazillion times, but I just never remembered. And so then they asked me, um, do you want anything? And I just remember I was so hungry. And my favorite meal is a uh, cheeseburger, French fries, and a vanilla shake. And I looked <laughs> at them and I said, yes, I want, I want one of those things that's kind of round and you put yellow stuff on it. 
and then it comes with these long things that you can put salt on, and it comes with this cup full of white, cold things, and you can drive through places and get it. And that's wow. basically because of the brain damage that I had from the extended CPR. I had tre- terrible aphasia. Um, and then um, also, so I was struggling through that, uh, trying to come back, trying to get in my head what had happened, why did this happen, how did this come about. And one of the things that struck me the very most was um, how the medical community especially continued to default to the negative. So I was constantly being told of things I wasn't going to do anymore. So when when I would ask, well, when can I run again? Oh, you, you won't run again. You'll walk, but you won't run. I go, when will I be able to swim? Oh, you won't swim again. And I just remember being thrown into this complete despair and depression. And just my one time the doctor left the room after telling me that I just, fell apart. I just sobbed. And my husband kept saying, why are you worried about that? You're alive. Why are you worried about that? But I think people don't realize that you're this way one day and within a literally 22 minutes, your life changed and you can't just shift into that immediately. You, you know, and then, you know, all the things that I had used in terms of my social life and my dealing with, uh, you know, any anxiety or all those kinds of things that exercise did for me. I can't just take that away from somebody and think that they're going to go, okay, well, that's cool. Mm-hmm. So I remember right. looking at this one doctor, and he's the one that really delivered the worst messaging to me and just, like, really virtually gave me no hope that I would do anything, but I would live. And they wanted to put an implantable defibrillator in me, and I wouldn't be able to run or exercise, do that anymore. And I just looked at him and said, you need to stop doing this. You need to stop telling me what I can't do. You need to tell me what I can do. And your job is to ask me what I want to do and to help me get there. That's your job. And uh, I said, you you just don't know who you're talking to. I've been through a lot of bad stuff. I'll get through this. You just wait. And um, and I was I was turning around to walk to go back to my room. I I couldn't find my room. And I said to this nurse, "Where's my room?" And the doctor said, "Look at you know she can't even find her room, and she's here telling me, you know what's up, kind of thing." But um, actually, later on, I did see that doctor. This is a several months after my accident. And I, he asked me how I was doing. I just ran into him just coincidentally. And I said, actually, I'm doing pretty well. I, um, I have a cardiologist who's a runner, and he got me into cardiac rehab, and I decided to not get an implantable defibrillator and to use this medication. Anyway, I went through the whole thing. And he mm-hmm. said, um, you know, I'm really glad. You're one of the strongest people I've ever met. And that was very gratifying to me. And I and I just said to him, I, I wish in the future you would talk to people about what they could do. Because that was really hard just to hear that. And so anyway, that's how it kind of got going. And, you know, it's a longer story. But that's why I came into this notion um, later on when I actually went back to start seeing patients. And, you know, I'd read books or I'd listen to music or I'd hear something. I'd go, wow, you know. People are amazing. They they can go through really bad things, and not only do they survive, but they actually can thrive. 
and not in Mm -hmm. spite of what happened, but as a direct result. I was talking to a group of friends one day and I said, you know, I just don't, I love this notion of people moving forward and I don't like the word rehab because Mm -hmm. it's too small. And somebody said, well, yeah, because they go higher, like meta, like they go, I go, that's it. Meta, going above and beyond, and habilitation means restoration. So people actually meta-hab. They meta-habilitate. They go and be above and beyond a simple restorative state. We need to focus on that. Yeah. Well, you kind of just led into our next question. Um, what is meta-habilitation? So meta-habilitation, it, it actually has evolved over, you know, my it has evolved over several years. My understanding of it and its use has evolved, which is kind of what happens when you come out of a traumatic experience that, you know, you mm-hmm. learn. So metahab at first is a word that denotes going above and beyond this simple restorative state. And then it's actually almost a philosophy that turns into a theory. I think it's like a theoretical basis that you hold into your uh hold with you that people have this capacity to move mm-hmm. beyond after bad things happen. And then I was challenged to say, well, well this is a nice idea, but how would you use it? So then what I did was um went back to get a doctorate and mm-hmm. I thought I will study metahabilitation. I'll look at how, not only why do people move forward in a really productive way, but as my dissertation chair really focused me on, he said, I want to know how these people accomplish this. How do they move forward? So that was my doctoral work, Is to, and I interviewed six people who had gone through horrible life events, including being imprisoned in Nazi Germany, to a 21-year-old with a spinal cord injury, to cancer, to a variety of different things. And when I interviewed them, I not only talked to them about their event and how and what happened afterwards, but I asked not only why, but more importantly, how do you think you got through that? And when you look Mm -hmm. at research, and they will tell you it's really important to get people's stories because they'll tell you how it all happened. So as uh-huh. I interviewed them and I read, reread their interviews over and over again, and I looked at them, I went, wow, you know, there's actually a system here. They didn't do this overnight. And as one of my colleagues who was helping me think this through said, no, you actually are seeing stages. You actually see they go through stages. So I said, that's right. So in order to get this notion of enhanced survivorship, you see people go through go through stages. What I actually also saw was you definitely see specific characteristics and what I call facilitating conditions that are mm-hmm. present in people who accomplish this advanced survivorship. So I developed further develop the notion of metahabilitation into a system that includes six stages, and we use characteristics and facilitating conditions in getting people to enhance their awareness of this is your capacity, 
This is where we want to go. This is where you are. Here's how you can move forward. So I developed it then into a clinical pathway, and I use it in the form of a variety of workshops. Um, I wrote a book about it. Um, I have workbooks that help people accomplish this. But it's something that I really wanted to make sure was applied. So it's not just a nice idea. It's actually something you can apply to clinical practice to help people get there. Um, really kind of what really prompted me on the post-traumatic growth, though, I hadn't thought about that during my doctoral work, but I w- was given a sabbatical a, a couple of years ago, and I looked at vicarious or secondary traumatization syndrome. And when I was reviewing the literature in depth, that's when I started seeing the word or the phrase post-traumatic growth. And so, again, it's just part of the evolution that I really want to promote the notion of post-traumatic growth, but metahabilitation is actually a clinical pathway that people can use to accomplish that. Okay. um, Regarding the six stages, did you develop those just from scratch, or did you take that from other theories and put it together? How did that come about? No, I I actually developed that. From, that was generated from scratch. That was just generated out of basically out of my head when I saw that go on. Because I actually, it's really interesting. The type of methodology I use is called heuristic research, and Clark Moustakis um, created that type of research, and it's it's about discovery of certain life issues. But in order to use heuristics, you actually have had to have had the experience because you are the one that really understands. You are the one that sees as you hear these stories. You kind of get it. So you had to have had the experience that you're studying. So since I had an extreme event, I was able to use heuristics. And as you listen to these stories, and you reread their transcripts over and over again, it just became clear to me that there was this pathway toward growth. And, uh, you know, really, to be honest, and the thing that I think is very unique about MetaHab is not only is it absolutely focused on strength and strength-based, as you talked about, But the other part of it that I've really come to understand is we part of the process of healing is that it's dark Mm -hmm. and that it's sad and that Mm -hmm. it's depressing. And I really focused on that in terms of the process. And I talked to people about this is I used to use the word normalize. I want to normalize this process. But I don't use that word too much anymore. I use the word more expected. Mm -hmm. As you go through bad things, we expect you to be in a dark place. We expect things to be bad for a while. But again, as I talk about, that's that's part of the process. That's not the end point. That's the beginning point as you start the process of post-traumatic growth. So that needs to be dealt with. But, again, mm-hmm. that's not where we want people to live. We want right. – that has to be part of the experience. And then you move and on. Yeah, for people who are in that 
stage, they have to, you know, they probably feel comforted knowing that it's expected that it's not out of the blue or that they're broken. You know, people go through this. So I think that's really awesome that you identify that are able to process that, you know, that this is, this is okay. <laughs> yeah. In fact, and you know, it's so funny because once I got into, I just see it everywhere. And in fact, I was just in a bookstore yesterday and I saw this book called um, The Book of Joy and it's by uh, Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. And mm-hmm. in one of the parts, they completely talk about the emotional reactivity uh, post-traumatic events or post-crisis is being such a reality. And one of the things that they actually say, um, the first step is to accept the reality of suffering mm-hmm. and recognizing that. And But then they said we should not make it worse by beating ourselves up or, and I would add, or by telling people this is, this is where you're going to be. You just have to recognize that's part of it. Because the other part of that is accepting the suffering and going through that is providing growth. Because once you come out of that, you recognize just how strong you are. And, yeah. um, again, one of the things I talk to people a lot about is prior to going through this, you might not recognize just how strong you are. But this mm-hmm. is going to tap into that in a big way. So let's focus on that. Yeah, I think you hit that right on. A lot of people, they know what they would like to do, but it's when they're met with a challenge that it's almost like they have to overcome that challenge. That's when they reach up to those limits. Right, right. You know, it's it's so funny when you see that uh, go on. I As I tell people, when I work with survivors and I see them in the first stages of this, the first part of it when it looks bad. I never say to people, well, you're going to grow from, I never go into that. That that I don't do because they don't want to hear that, okay? They're just in a bad place. But in my head, in my head, I'm always thinking we're going to be creative in how we move through this because this is going to be our eventual goal. And there's going to be a time that's going to be right when you start to introduce this to them. And to me, the thing that I have once, well, let me say, once I really adopted this mindset and this practice, I got less anxious and less fatigued working with trauma people and got more excited because it is so unbelievable to see where people end up. And that, to me, that positive, optimistic, when you see these unbelievable outcomes, that fuels me. That that gives you fuel. And I think that's an important thing when I work with people who provide care to trauma survivors, is to have them really recognize what it is they can do and where it is, if they do their job really well, they do their mm-hmm. job in this part of the person's healing process. It is invigorating. It's exciting. You should feel, you know, not drained, not, Mm -hmm. you know, burn out, but you should feel excited about it. And I think that's another place where I'd really like to see if I could make a little headway is working with clinicians and reducing their sense of um, burnout and pessimism. (laughs) You know, that's a toughie. That's a tough one. 
Yeah, and I think as, you know, working on, like, short-term stay units or short-term places, you don't see major growth, but the little things that you do see, like, taking, like, the time to recognize those is hard. But I think as clinicians, that's something we need to focus on, like you said, because there is growth whether or not we see it or not, you know. Um, If a patient never comes to a group and came out for 15 minutes, and went back, like, that is huge progress. But I feel like sometimes during the day, we're just like, oh, you know, we had rehouse or, you know, the patient went back and now, you know, it didn't work out the way we wanted to. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think that's you really know, and Let me just add that, that. That is such good insight. That is such good insight. And I think whether you're raising children or what is you doing, they're always t- talking about catching them doing something well. Mm-hmm. Pointing that out. Listen, I saw you do this really well. That was great. Mm-hmm. And one of the and so sometimes we need to incorporate that with our clients and patients. When you catch them doing something well, you need to point mm-hmm. that out and just say, you know, you showed up. And I got to tell you, people who do well afterwards did that. So that's really good. You did that. So I'm hoping you'll do that again tomorrow. The other thing that we do absolutely know from brain studies. So. At I, let me back up. I do teach a class in neuroscience. It's very rudimentary. It's an intro one. So I don't do any original research on the brain. So I would not consider myself an expert or a neuroscientist at all, but I know a lot about the brain. One of the things that we do know about um, motivation and the brain is it is, especially with children, and I think you can apply this to patients and clients, it doesn't help them to tell them they're perfect and they're really good. Mm-hmm. What is the what we have found or what not we have found but what science shows us is it's much better to praise the effort. So when oh. you see a child instead of saying, "Oh, you're so smart, you're so this," well then they think, "Well, that's cool. I guess I don't have to work that because I'm already there." It's far better to say, "I saw you working really hard on that. I saw the effort you put into that." Wow, that was really amazing because I could see that you didn't want to do that and you did it, and that was awesome effort. So I think we can utilize that, or I utilize that in patient care as well. For the clients that, you know, the people that I work with, I really praise and focus on their effort because that's what you want them to keep doing and keep working on and getting better. Um, so I think um, you've just made some really good insights about that. Maybe I could just add a bit to it. So would that be uh, very similar to being specific about the things that you're praising them? Well, what, uh, let, yeah. So one of the things that I really love doing is when people are at a place, and you never know when exactly they're going to be there, so I like to ask them. I like to ask people stuff. We want you to move in this direction. Are you ready to look at this? Would you be ready to look at that or whatever? And then they can tell you. And so once you're kind of ready to start thinking about it, I present them with the list of characteristics and facilitating conditions. And I say to them, people who have done well, ultimately, not right away, but over time, people have done well, hold these characteristics and these facilitating conditions 
I'd like you to look at this list, and I want you to check off what you think you have. And then if you know them well enough and you work with them well, you know, you might look at it yourself and say, I noticed you didn't check this off, but I notice when I work with you that you're very determined and you're very much. So we work with what we got. That's mm-hmm. where you start. You work with what you have. And once they see you have these things, oh, and these things translate into doing well, then that's what we're going to start building on. That's where we're going to start going. Because to me, it does no good to sit around and talk about what you don't have. Because first of all, you're never really sure. And second of all, what good is that? So we want to focus on what you do have and how to get better at that. And what to me is the most gratifying is when I work with people over time, they'll do that checkoff list and then we'll start moving mm-hmm. them through the stages of MetaHab. And it could be a few months later and I go, I want you to go back to that list and see what you have. And they'll start checking off more. And I will say to them, you know, I didn't teach you anything. This was already in you. You just unearthed it and discovered it as you moved through your recovery process. So good for you. Good for you. You finally recognized you had that in you. And it was there all the time. You just didn't see it because you hadn't pushed yourself or whatever. And that's that's the thing to me that is so gratifying and so fun. And I will tell you the one word I hear from people over and over again is I go, can you give me one word or one sentence about how well this working with this strength-based program does? I hear all the time, hope. You gave me hope. And I think no matter where you are in the trauma phase, you have to give people some sense of hope. And they go, well, I want to do this again. You go, you know what? You may do that. We don't know how you, you may go way past that, but let's mm-hmm. just stay for today and let's just, I'm telling you what you can do today and see what you can grow tomorrow and get some traction and let's start moving forward and do this in an optimistic, hopeful manner. And mm-hmm. um I think it's a game changer. And I just wish we really looked at rehab more like that which is why i love rec therapy you guys are all about (laughs) (laughs) like i'm so into what you're doing (laughs) um what populations have you worked with or find the most gratifying when they overcome and find their hope well i i'm just uh as I started implementing MetaHab in this series of workshops, I had an opportunity and done quite a bit of research with the Salvation Army in their addiction mm-hmm. and dependency uh, group. So mm-hmm. most of the people, well, the people that I do work with there are men who have either uh, been diverted from the uh, jail and to Salvation Army because of addiction dependency issues, or they have been in jail and now they're released in the Salvation Army. And so um, I had to tell you that I I have learned so much through taking by taking those men through this MetaHab program 
because one of the things that I learned a lot from them is, you know, they're constantly, they've been told for years that they, they're not very good at things. There's usually some sort of trauma that's core to what got them into addiction dependency and then they're in jail and they're not giving. And so I always tell them as we talk about MetaHab, we're never probably going to talk about addiction dependency at all. We're going to talk mm-hmm. about you. And I want you to understand how strong you are because usually people don't do to themselves what you've done to yourself and not only survived, but you've actually thrived. You've actually lived. So you're very strong people and we're going to, that's where we're going to start from. And it is so powerful to see these grown men come into this recognition of themselves as decent people with strength that can be used in a positive, productive manner in their lives. It's very powerful. I worked with them. I worked with veterans. I love it when I work with veterans because they, too, you know, tend to get down on themselves, tend to look at it and go, no, you are so strong. I want to deal with your strength. I want to move with that. Veterans, I've worked uh, with cancer patients. Um, I do uh, survivor workshops which I will have a variety of survivors in. So it can be anywhere from spinal cord injuries to people, divorced people, to people with cardiac issues. And I absolutely love it when I put all these people together because um, they learn so much from each other. Because even though there's some unique issues with a spinal cord injury or with uh, a person who had um, some sort of childhood abuse or cardiac patients or whatever, there's some unique things to it. There's also some overriding global issues about trauma and post-traumatic growth. And so to see them recognize things in each other and move past, I actually kind of love having this mixed group together. It's very, It can be very, very interesting and very, very powerful. So I call myself a generalist in trauma. So what I love to do is collaborate with different organizations and if they have spinal cord injuries, I work with them about instituting MetaHab and say, let's let's tweak this program, let's make it unique for your spinal cord injury patients. Or I do the same thing with cancer patients. And, you know, I'm working with UC Davis right now. We're using MetaHab and they're um, with some cancer patients, but we're specifically going to use it in women who have been diagnosed with breast cancer because there's some unique things with them. So I can't study each subgroup. I just like to study trauma as a whole and then work with people to use it in their unique settings. Yeah, it sounds like it can really benefit so many different people and different ways, but then they all can kind of relate back to just healing and moving forward and being positive. So I think this is great. I think that everybody should be practicing. (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny, you know, it's funny when you say that too, because a couple, a few years after I finished up my work and I was doing some stuff, uh, there was, there was, um, there was this time that um, this one month where there's a, a lot of bad things that happened to me. So uh, my mother died very suddenly on this Monday, the same day. A niece died of breast cancer, 
the same day. And five days later, our daughter was getting married. And so we had to go through that. And then a couple of months after that, my husband chose to leave his job. And I understand why he wanted to do that, but he didn't have another job before leaving his job. Had these deaths. I had, you know, helped put on a wedding. My husband was not working at the time. And I was the person who had to do all of my mom's um, legal things. And so I was pretty overwrought. And uh, I was talking to a friend of mine about it. And she just, she's a physician. We were in co-practice together in family practice. And I was saying, this is going on and that's going on. And she looked at me and she said, well, I guess you'll figure out if that whole metahab thing you've got going, I guess you'll figure out if that works because it sounds like you need to put yourself through that. And it was so funny when she said that. I thought she's right. So listeners, because we have such an awesome set with Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn this week, we are going to separate the episodes so you get not one but two weeks out of it. Um, and so you can go a little bit more in depth into MetaHab and learn more about it. So to be continued. Rec, play, live, out. <laughs>